Um, so I'm actually in Matthew 1, and uh, you're going to see in a minute why I didn't have them read Matthew 1. Um, <clears throat> so two things as we head that way. Uh, we had a work day yesterday at Rachel Freeman Elementary. Um, so way to go, team. I think that was a, a huge success. We're, we're attempting to get out and engage elementary or middle schools and really serve them, so that was really good. Uh, second thing I have is on Christmas Eve, we have two services. Everybody say two. Two. All right, that, that one's at five and one's at seven. They will be a very tight hour, okay? Um, it's a family service, so there's not going to be kids' rooms. Our, our infant-toddler room will be available if you've got a screaming infant or toddler or for a nursing mom or whatever, that room will be open, as will the other two. But they are family services. So the point of that is, can you guess? We have two services, and they're family services. So y'all tell me, what's the point? Bring everybody. Christmas uh, is probably, especially in the American church and the Southern American church where we are, is probably the best time in the world to reach out and invite a neighbor to church. So that's what it's for. Don't come alone. Touche? All right, good enough. There you go. Invite somebody. Five and seven, Christmas Eve. We are not having a service the 26th. That's the next Sunday. We're taking that off and stay home, enjoy your family, and then we'll be back at it January 2nd or th what is it? Thank you, Stacy. Someone better than a calendar with a calendar than I am. Uh, so there you go. There you go. Sound good? Okay. Now we are in Matthew one, and I am not going to tackle the whole chapter. Um, anyone in Matthew one yet? Mark is, I can tell. Jack is back there. You're smiling at me already. Um, so I actually titled this Women in Jesus' Genealogy. Fascinating, fascinating group of women we're going to look at here this morning. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm, I will get some into my theology of women, although I can, I can give you more of that. You're going to, you'll get flavors of it as we go along. Um, so I'm actually not going to read this whole thing because it's very dry, um, but, but let's, let's set the table with a couple things as we, as we head into this. Um, first off, Meg put it in her email. I don't know if Meg's here. I think I saw Meg earlier. But um, Advent means, it's from the Latin Vulgate translation, and it means the coming um, or arrival. So it's the, it's the coming or arrival of the Lord Jesus. And I would think of it three ways. It's the coming or the arrival of the Lord Jesus to Bethlehem, Right? God incarnate, that's how he came first of all. Then it's the coming or arrival of the Lord Jesus into our, into our hearts. That's right, that's what Advent is. We are celebrating that. And then thirdly, it's the final, um, if you were into like a seminary word, it'd be eschatology, but it's the return of Jesus. So it's the coming home of him first to Bethlehem, second into our hearts, and third, his final return. And I would even add a fourth. It's the daily step-by-step -step Jesus journey. It's the coming of Jesus into your life on a daily basis. Yeah? That's why we celebrate Advent. There you go. Okay, um, <clears throat> second thing, as we set the table here for Matthew 1, which is very interesting. Um, Matthew, anybody know what Matthew was by trade or by occupation? A tax collector. There's almost nothing in our day and age that you could use to describe a tax collector and how bitterly hated he would have been. Um, maybe, maybe during like the... <laughs> Maybe during, like, if we were to rewind the clock a little bit to the McCarthy era or the Cold War era, and you would have had somebody who was working, uh, you know, for the enemy, sort of, um, and then also skimming off the top and stealing from you, you might get an idea of how hated a tax collector would be. So he's working for Rome, and we all hate taxes, right? It's very funny to me that tax avoidance is highly lauded and tax evasion is illegal. But regardless, uh, so in, in, in Matthew's day, 
uh, he, he goes to collect Roman taxes and he um, adds 10, 15, 20%, whatever he can get on the top of that. And guess what he does with it? He keeps it. Everybody hates him. I mean, hates this guy, like would do anything they could to run him down in the street with their horse or wagon or whatever they were doing. Um, so now here's the question. Why would Jesus pick this guy to be one of the 12? And I don't think you can fully grasp what we're about to read unless you get this. Why would Jesus pick this guy to be one of the 12? I love this section, by the way. I mean, I love this section. I mean, this is amazing. Way to go, that section. Okay. Um, All right, so why Matthew? Okay. What were most of the other disciples by trade? Do you think fishermen could write very well? Do you you think fishermen were used to even collecting thoughts and making them cogent and putting them down on paper? I think that one of the things, absolutely beautiful, if you went to the calling of Matthew, is when Jesus called Matthew, and Matthew stands up and he leaves everything behind, all of his wealth, which he would have been wealthy, all of his family, everything that Matthew walks away from, I think Matthew got up, chose to follow Jesus, and he carried one thing with him. His pen. There you go. So I am convinced that the reason Jesus grabbed Matthew is not only because he knew what was in his heart and he knew he would become a powerful disciple, but from the beginning, Jesus had it in his heart that Matthew would write all these things down. So Matthew is a hated Jewish man. Fascinating. All right, let's start reading. Ah, one more thing. Uh, Is it not weird to start a book with a genealogy? I mean, how weird is that? I mean, who would do that? Matthew. (laughs) Okay, so let's just park there real quick. Uh, In this day and age, in order to be an Old Testament priest, um, you had to produce an unbroken pedigree in your line all the way back to Aaron, the original priest. In order to marry a priest for a Jewish person in this day and age, the the wife would have had to demonstrate um, at least a fifth generation pedigree of being fully Jewish, okay? So for, for a Jewish person um, who's sitting down to read this, and I think this is largely a gospel to the Jewish people, although it's also um, to us, but it, it is, um, it, it is uh, almost essential that you would start with a genealogy, as crazy as that is. So this would be, uh, it would not only be normal, it would be expected, and this is the really most funny part, I think, is it would be interesting. Now, for us as Westerners, it's just not all that interesting, Right? But let's uh, jump in here and let's read because we're going to pull out five people that are fascinating. Verse 1, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now skip down to verse 5. Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Oh, I actually skipped one. I'm sorry. Let's go back up. Verse 3. Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Okay, there we go. Female number one in a Jewish genealogy. This is like mind-blowing. Absolutely earth-shattering and mind-blowing for anyone reading this. All right, continue on. Verse 5. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. David, I'll skip down to the last part of verse 6. 
David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Really interesting that Matthew doesn't write out her name. Anybody know her name? Bathsheba. Bathsheba. That's exactly right. And then we go on, the father of, the father of. This would have been interesting to you if you were Jewish and lived at the time. And then we get all the way down um, to the last, verse, last part of 16. Uh, Jacob, the father of Joseph, who was the husband of? Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus who was called the Messiah. Okay, so we have five women who show up inside of the Jesus genealogy. Oh, man. You already got drama. All right, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a quick look um, at all five of these women, Uh, not as much about Mary, but mostly at Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, Um, We'll conclude with Mary, and then we're going to pull four or five things that I think are highly applicable out of their lives and see if we can kind of go, okay, what was God doing then? What's he doing now? How does it tie in and make application? Yeah? All right, here we go. Tamar. Um, Deuteronomy 25 actually describes this type of marriage that Tamar is in. You can make a note of that if you want. I'm not going to read it, but her story is in Genesis 38. Now, her story's crazy, first of all. So this is what happened. Um, Tamar, get, there's a guy named Judah who's one of the um, 12 sons of Israel, okay, 12 tribes of Israel. You've probably heard of that. So Judah um, has three sons, and one of the sons marries this girl named Tamar, and her husband dies. So under uh, Deuteronomy 25, um, the way they would have taken care of a, a long story short, here it is in a nutshell, um, if a, if a wife um, lost a husband, then the other brothers in the family would have um, married her, produced offspring for her, so that the, the line and legacy and lineage of the brother could continue. Does that make sense? So first brother uh, dies, and then dad marries Tamar to the second brother. Guess what happens to the second brother? He dies. There's a younger brother, but he's so young she can't marry him yet. So dad, Judah, says, hey, just wait, and in a few years when he grows up, I'll get get you guys married, okay? So years go by, and guess what happens? No marriage. Genesis 38, if you want to make a note, it's worth reading. Um, And uh, so what what Tamar actually does um, is she dresses up like a prostitute. Did he say that in church? I did. The Bible says it. Well, you know what's crazy to me is if, if you got a group of like intelligent scholars together from around America and you said, hey, um, write, a, write a history of the Middle East and come up with a religion, there's all this stuff that they would not put in there. You know what I'm saying? Any intelligent human would avoid this story and not put it in there. And yet this is the God of the universe and he has Matthew... Put it in. He ha- First, he has Moses write it in Genesis 38, and then he has Matthew put it in the very lineage of Jesus. And I think if we can you begin to get your head around who is this God, and why in the world would he put this gal Tamar in this story and in the very legacy and lineage of Jesus, you'll be able to understand Jesus in a different way, and it possibly could transform the way you walk with him. Yeah. Okay, so... Here we got Tamar. So Tamar dresses up like a prostitute. She puts a veil over her face. And here comes this guy, Judah, who is her father-in-law. And guess what Judah does? He turns aside. He sleeps with the prostitute. Guess what happens? She gets pregnant. Now, right during the exchange, and we won't get too much into that detail, but she asked for his signet ring and his staff. Brilliant. 
brilliant gal. Brilliant. I mean, incredible. So she gets his signet ring and she gets his staff. Then she sneaks off and she'd ask for, a, a, I think, a goat or a, a sheep as payment. She, he tries to send payment to her after the fact. She's not there. She's disappeared. But some months later, all of a sudden, Tamar is showing. So old Judah, being the righteous man that Judah was, finds out about this and said, haul her out and burn her. You believe that Jesus would put this in his legacy and lineage? This is like soap opera. There is a point. So he says, holler out and burn her. So on her way to get burnt, she goes, ta-da. Here's the signet ring and the staff of the man who did this to me. And Judah has a public repentance. Like, <gasps> and he actually goes, she's more righteous than I am. It's all in Genesis 38. It's worth the read. <clears throat> She doesn't get burned. Not only does she not get burned, she ends up in the legacy of Jesus and the genealogy of Jesus. And if you want to be put this in a, in a more graphic way, this is a gal who's been with a father-in-law and two brothers. That is crazy. God is not afraid of the messy journey of our human life and experience, let me assure you. He will put it right out there. And let me also say... I'm going to say two sides of this coin. And I don't mean to be offensive, but on the other, side, the other hand, I think the gospel of the Lord Jesus, when you really understand it, is offensive. <clears throat> I don't care what you've done, what you've smoked, what you've drank, who you've slept with, where you've been, what you... It doesn't matter because the love of Jesus is big enough and we're going to see it here to reach in and if you will run into his arms, not just once, but daily and cling to him, he will rescue you, save you, redeem you, put your feet on his rock and he will send your life forward. That is his heart. Same, same sense here. I don't even care who you've hurt or how you've hurt them or who you've abused. He can redeem if you will run into his arms. Flip it. I don't care how bad it's. I'm not saying I don't care. What's a better word than that? It, it, is, in concert, it, is, not, um, it is not germane to the situation how abused you've been how hurt you've been, how undignified you've been treated, how ugly you've been treated, how you've been set aside or cast aside, because if you can run into the arms of Jesus, not just one, but consistently, he will work to redeem and restore and set your feet upon his rock. That's the gospel message. That's the Christmas season. That's what this whole thing is all about, is him setting his feet, our feet on his rock, if we're willing to run to him again and again. Amen? Somebody's going to say, I can't believe Pastor Michael said that. I can't either. I can't either. Okay. Um, interesting. Let me just make, some, make a little point here since we've just talked about Tamar. Revelation 5.5 5 says, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Judah. Now, who's Judah? The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. That is scandalous. That is scandalous. And I would actually propose to you that the love of Jesus and the grace of Jesus and the mercy of Jesus is absolutely scandalous. Come on. 
Okay, there we go. Rahab. Anybody know what Rahab was? Verse 5. A what? Man, we're getting a, we're getting a theme going here, aren't we? Okay, so uh, the Israelites um, get to the edge of the Jordan River. They go into the Jordan. They spy out the land. Um, they refuse to have faith and believe in God. Uh, so they get to wander around the desert. Anybody know how long? 40 years. That's right. Big, big mess. Go camping with two and a half million people. This is a city the size of Chicago uh, in the wilderness for 40 years. That sounds like a terrible time to me. But that's what they did. So they come back around, and then Joshua and Caleb and some other spies go into the land, and there's a city called Jericho. Long story short, there's a lady uh, named Rahab who welcomes um, Joshua and Caleb into the, the, her house, and she actually protects them um, from the king of, of Jericho. And not only does she protect them, she actually lies. It's really interesting. Um, that is in, I think it's Joshua 2. Um, she lies, and what, what's amazing to me is that she, uh, she makes this profession of faith in this Yahweh creator God, and in doing so, she, t- she um, acts against her gods, she acts against her leaders, she acts against her city, and she acts against her family. So here you have another prostitute who um, is, is non, um, non-Jewish, so, so Tamar is... Um, probably Jewish, um, but, but is certainly questionable in her behavior, right? Um, then we have Rahab, who is non-Jewish, who all of a sudden is in Jesus's lineage. So Rahab, if you read the whole story, she actually, the, the, the city is taken and there, everyone is actually killed except Rahab, and Rahab is saved, and Rahab is grafted into the family of God. It's amazing. And not only is she grafted into the family of God, she actually makes it into the genealogy of Jesus. But I think the most powerful thing is that Rahab, in order to, um, in order to walk with this God, just like we talked about Matthew having to forsake everyone, Rahab has to walk away and forsake everything and everyone. He, he calls each of us to that point. That doesn't mean you have to walk away literally from the person you're necessarily um, connected to or or whatever, but you you do have to come to the point where you put King Jesus ahead of all else in your life. That's the gospel. So we've got Rahab. Then we have Ruth. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on Ruth. I actually preached a series on Ruth a couple of... Maybe we're at the Hannah Block Center. I don't know where we were, but anyway, it's, it's on the, you could scroll back and find it. Um, R- Ruth, uh, I, I, don't, I don't need to get too, too deep into this, but Ruth is actually a Moabite, um, so she, she's foreign. She's not Jewish. So to have a foreign woman, again, in the legacy and lineage of Jesus is absolutely mind-blowing. And there are some people who suggest, because of the Hebrew, that she's got an immoral relationship with Boaz before she gets married. I actually don't believe any of that. Um, when you look at the Hebrew, I think, I think she's a, a saintly woman from beginning to end. I love Ruth. Absolutely love her. So she's in the legacy and lineage of Jesus. Then uh, we have this lady named Bathsheba. Now, Interesting that, uh, let's, let's read what Matthew says about her. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Isn't it interesting he doesn't say her name? Now, there's a lot of different takes on Bathsheba, and I'm not going to get into all of them. I have an opinion. It doesn't mean I'm right. It's just my opinion. Um, but I think that Matthew um, has disdain for Bathsheba. So, so he calls her the wife of a guy who's non-Jewish, Okay. 
the wife of Uriah, um, who had been Uriah's wife. So let's paint this picture just a second. Um, David's Jerusalem was probably no bigger than um, 12 to 15 acres. So the, the acreage that this property sits on, it's a lot into the woods, so you wouldn't really know it, but it's 13 acres. Let me say that again. David's Jerusalem is 12 to 15 acres. This property sits on 13 acres. What I'm saying is Jerusalem at that time was not very big. So the wealthier you were, um, the higher you built your house, okay? And if you want to read this, it's in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. But the higher you built your house and the, the more wealthy people among the city of Jerusalem would have been able to look down from their roof or their whatever and see into the courtyards and into the spaces of other people's houses, Make sense? So um, you have uh, David, and, and 2 Samuel 11 and 12 says David sends all his um, men off to battle, and he's at home, and he's hanging out up on his roof, and from his roof he could see the whole you know, 12 or 15 acres. It's not very big. And w- what the scripture goes on to say is you have Bathsheba, um, and, and some people actually contend that Bathsheba was raped by David, um, which is certainly possible. But I would actually uh, say Bathsheba, um, was, her house was probably no more than 20 or 30 feet away from King David's house. So I think King David is up on his uh, roof, and he is looking down. And uh, Bathsheba has sent her Uriah the Hittite husband off to war. And she's not an idiot, right? Thank you, Emily. You just connected the dots. I think she was relatively strategic. So she either gets on her roof or she gets in front of a window. She knows exactly what she's doing, but she bathes the way everyone bathes. And all of a sudden, uh, you know, King David sees her, sends for her. They get together. What happens? Baby, absolutely. We're pregnant all of a sudden. David goes through this, all this kind of shenanigans, trying to get Uriah to sleep with his wife so that they can cover up the pregnancy. He doesn't. David ends up killing Uriah. Long story, Nathan the prophet comes and is part of that. It's fascinating. At some point we'll study it. But David kills Uriah, um, and then he calls for Bathsheba, and and he takes her as one of his, his wives, and the baby that Bathsheba has actually dies. But then they have another baby together by the name of Solomon. And guess what Solomon becomes? Isn't it interesting that God didn't choose one of David's other wives to give birth to the next king? So I'm, I'm, not, um, I'm not advocating Bathsheba's craziness by any stretch. I, I, what's interesting both about uh, Tamar and about Bathsheba is I think they both strategically advanced their own interests the best way they knew how. Did he say that in church? Yes, I did. But God is this God of redemption who takes even our sin even our ugliness, even the worst things that we have done, and when we bring him to, to him um, and surrender them before him, he begins the process of undoing the evil and bringing restoration and beauty from the ashes. That's this God. So, so when Matthew sits down and he begins to pen this, he pens out these four ladies. You've got Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and then you have Bathsheba. And then you have Mary, the servant girl, who I'm not going to get too far into. But let's take just a minute here, and let's see if we can extrapolate some meaning on on why uh, Matthew lists these five women. So the first thing I think I uh, I would say or I would suggest 
is that Jesus um, is intentionally tearing down the divide between men and women. You know, we actually just added a uh, female, believe it or not, to our lead team. So she's one of our elders here. Her name's Meg Gamelli. Meg, where are you? Is she in here? She's, she's back in the back. But we just added a female. So we have a female elder here. So I meet with a group of pastors. That's right. You can clap. There you go. Way to go, Meg. Come on. I meet with a group of pastors regularly, and there's um, probably seven-eighths of the group, I think, would actually disagree with me, just so you know. This isn't a popular viewpoint, but it is my viewpoint. And not only is it my viewpoint, I think it's Jesus' viewpoint, okay? So I want to read to you just quickly um, Luke 8, if you want to flip there, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 3, because I think it shows some interesting, uh, shed some interesting light into this. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to the other, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him. Who are the twelve? Disciples, that's right. And also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Really interesting. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Come on. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. So three women are named. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. I love Jesus. I love Jesus. Who supported Jesus? You know who was told first about the resurrection? Come on, Mary. Yeah, that's right. So I think the first thing that's happening here is Matthew, from the very beginning, is actually setting out, um, and I'm not sure if it's intentional or unintentional in his mind, um, but he is setting out, or God is setting out through him, to tear down the divide between men and women. So we'll end with this too, but Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor male or female, for you are all one in Christ. Okay. I'm not going to dig fully into my theology of women, but I believe in having women pastors. I believe in having women as elders. And I can take you through New Testament theology on that if you want to do that. I can also recommend some books for you. And I also preached on it once. We could dig it out and and find it if that's important to you. Um, So number one, Jesus tears down the divide between men and women. Second thing Jesus does is he tears down the divide between Jew and Gentile. Um, and, and that means so little to us as Americans. Um, and I, I couldn't even, I, I was trying to like, how can I put this in terms that we would understand? And, and here was one of the, the only things I could come up with. The Apostle Paul uh, was Jewish, right? And who's Apostle Paul sent to? Gentiles. Okay. Uh, and so the Apostle Paul, who's a Jewish man, goes around and he's preaching to Gentiles. That would not be unlike um, the South. Um, in the, say, 50s when the Jim Crow laws were in effect and calling a black man to minister to white people or calling a white person to minister to black people at that time. In other words, there is so much hatred and racial tension between Jews and Gentiles that it is absolutely unthinkable that God would do this. It is profound. So there is this, there is this beautiful thing that God does. He, it's like Jesus breaks all the rules. He breaks all the molds. He breaks all the divides. And he begins to bring his family together in this beautiful way. We have a... Um, is Catherine here today? No, I love Catherine. She's not here. She's an African-American friend of mine, and I've known her for 
I don't know, 10 or 11 years. And when I see Catherine, I grab her, and she and I have this real short breath prayer. It's just this really short thing. Lord, would you build a multi-ethnic version of your church here in Wilmington, and would you do it through us? We've prayed it every time we see each other for, I don't know, 10 or 11 years. And, but, but that is, I am convinced, God's heart. So uh, Matthew, number one, abolishes the divide between men and women. You get to see God's heart right there. Matthew intentionally tears down the divide between Jew and Gentile. So any, any ethnic um, division or separation, because you have Ruth and Rahab who are Gentiles, that's right. And then you got um, Bathsheba was at least married to a Gentile. But uh, then you have Mary um, and I guess Tamar. Um, would have, would have uh, both been Jewish. So immediately you have Jesus coming to earth, you have Matthew writing about it, and he's, go- he's going, I'm going to take down the divide between men and women, I'm going to take down the divide between Jews and Gentiles, and then the third divide that comes down is fascinating to me. So think about Mary for a second, and think about Ruth. What are they? They do almost everything right, at least what we read. What? They're saints. Okay, they're saints. And then we have Tamar. We have Rahab. Who are both? Big old sinners. I'm a big old sinner. If you don't know my story, one day you will. I am. I've got a sad, a difficult, hard um, hole in my journey that the Lord is redeeming and putting back together in a beautiful way. Matthew comes onto the scene inspired and full of the Holy Spirit, and he tears down the divide between men and women. He tears down the divide between Jew and Gentile, and he tears down the divide between saints and sinners. The gospel is for all people who will come to him. And what's interesting about the book of Matthew is when he pens this, he more than all four of the gospel authors focuses on Jesus' really righteously angry rebuke of religious folks, which are like today's pastors. There's a lot of ways to be religious, by the way. You can get religious about your lights. You can get religious about your music. You can get religious about your wreaths and candles. You can get religious about your steeple. Anything that stops being about a relationship with this God and becomes just something we do. Why do you do that? I don't know. It's just what we do. You know that, That's religion. That's detracting from the centrality of the cross and the relationship between you and Jesus. It's, it's people. Um, uh, Sabbath, Jesus actually said, was created for people, not people to serve the Sabbath. Same thing with traditions of humans. As long as they are serving us in our relationship with God, great, have a wreath. But the moment they begin to impede that, I'm of the fan, you know, kick them out. So he intentionally tears down the divide um, between men and women, Jews and Gentiles, saints and sinners. And the fourth thing I think I would point out here is you have all, uh, we won't talk about Mary, but all four of the women before Mary are bold, courageous, intelligent, and I think do the best they can to advance themselves the only way they see fit. Amazing. And then the last thing that I think is possibly most important is at this point, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. Okay, so who knows how Matthew ends? Anybody? What? Somebody said it. Great commission. All authority in heaven and earth has uh, been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all 
nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So Matthew actually begins with Gentiles, and Matthew ends with Gentiles. See, in this day and age, you have a Jewish group of people who thinks that they are, um, they are solely focused on their Jewish nation. And what begins to happen, and I think Matthew is key in it, and then Jesus is key in it because Jesus begins to minister to people who are outside the Jewish nation, and Jesus makes this transition from just the Jewish Messiah to being the Savior of the world. It also happens fascinatingly, and we'll study it at some point, but when Jesus feeds the 5,000, that is a group um, largely of Jewish people. When Jesus feeds the 4,000, he's on the shores right underneath where the Decapolis was, that is 10 Gentile cities, and they would have been largely Gentiles. So Jesus himself makes this transition. Matthew is making this transition. But you begin to see that Jesus is not just the Jewish Messiah. He's actually the Savior of the whole world. And so as Matthew begins, he's communicating that uh, there is so much that God has um, for people and that God is a God of restoration. God is the God who looks at the heart. God is the God who redeems. God is a God who is not afraid of how ugly or black or dark or deep or whatever you've gotten. No, no, no. God is a God who if you will come to him in full surrender, then he will take you and he will plant your feet on his rock and he will be about redeeming and restoring your life. That's who this God is about. And so Matthew begins this whole advent, the coming of Jesus, with this sense that there is no more man or woman. There is no more saint or sinner. There is no more Gentile or Jew. No, 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 no. We are all one in Jesus. At the foot of the cross, it is flat, and we are all there together. It is King Jesus, and it is us. And as we celebrate Christmas, that's what this thing is all about. It's the coming of Jesus into our lives to infuse us with his presence and power and grace. I'm going to read Galatians 3.28. This is Paul, and this is crazy that Paul would even write this. Start in verse 27, Galatians 3.27. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Matthew is offering, and he begins without even using words. I love this about Jesus because he always preaches with words. He preaches with his life. Even the geography and the land where he lived preaches his name. But, but Matthew is inviting all of us, saints and sinners, male and female, Jew and Gentile, all are welcome at this table if you will come and give your life to him. Come on. That's what this Christmas season is about. I am going to shift us and we are going to celebrate communion. Um, if you're at home and you're joining us, you're watching us, I would love for you to grab, you can pause the video if you want, but grab some grape juice, grab some bread, grab whatever you have. And when I pray over this, we'll also pray over that. We would love for you to celebrate along with us. Um, we have some, uh, for those who are, are being more careful of COVID, we have some, um, little fully wrapped things that, that we'll make available. Um, but let's celebrate communion. Uh, this is the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus as we head into this Christmas season. Amen?